are listening to The Sidebar, courtesy of the New York Association of Black Journalists, a program about the world of media as seen through the lens of black media makers. Hi, guys. This is Benita Sostre. I am the president of NYABJ. That's right, the New York chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists. I am so excited that you have joined us to listen to our podcast. I really hope you enjoyed our Roy Wood Jr. season premiere episode. And I look forward to you listening to our Black History Month special series that we're doing for you. Um, It's going to be a jam-packed season this year. We have a lot of things in store for you for the podcast and also for the organization. We are going to be doing a Black History Month brunch on February 25th. That's in person in Manhattan. You can still get your tickets for that. You can just go on nyabj.org or nyabj on all social media. Find us there. You can get your tickets like that. We're going to be doing the first ever live podcast on February 22nd. We're going to be talking about all things love. So check that out. And I'm going to start talking talking all about June because I'm tired of the winter. So in June, we'll be having our third annual Juneteenth Gala. That's on June 19th. It will be in Manhattan, New York. That is where you pull out your gowns, your tuxedos, and get ready to celebrate back Black excellence. We will be giving out awards to journalists who have been doing the work all year long, as well as serving up some really good food and having a fantastic cocktail hour. Looking forward to seeing you in person. So thank you so much for listening to The Sidebar by NYABJ, our member-produced podcast. And uh, I hope you keep listening all season long. Thanks so much, guys. Just to start, just for numbers, for those of you who like numbers, I have a lot for you. My guest today has a minimum of 561 credits as an executive producer, executive producer and showrunner, producer, co-producer, supervising producer, or production consultant. Add in another 231 minimum credits as a writer. My guest today, Ms. Pam Visay. Thank you so much for taking (laughs) some time with us today. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Michael. I mean, there's so many other things I could say, but then it ended up being just a monologue and you saying thank you at the end. (laughs) To give my to give the listeners of the sidebar, of course, the podcast of the New York Association of Black Journalists to give them an idea of who I am talking to. My first question would be, who is Pam Bise? I am, first and foremost, um, a writer. I mean, that's, the you know, you see all these credits as directing and producing, but I fundamentally am a writer. I'm a mother. Um and um, I'm a woman who is inspired by those around me and the things I see in my life and dedicated to opening doors for those that follow because someone opened the doors for me in this industry. That's who I am. Take us a little bit into your career, your educational history. I mean, I have listeners in, of, of all of okay. all types. So for those who are, for the, I mean, even for the <laughs> younger ones uh, who are trying to determine which way they want to go. Let's take it from there. Let's let's take it from your education. Yeah, I came to Los Angeles um, to go to school at the University of Southern California as a journalism major, to be honest. I, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. 
and I had a great education and I majored in political science and, and journalism. And I got exposed to some great um, people in the industry that actually worked in journalism and also uh, some great people who worked in politics and spent time working on presidential campaigns. I, I, I didn't know I was going toward this comedy writing thing until a producer who was teaching a course, she was a producer on 60 Minutes. I had a summer course and um, this course was specifically about you know, translating facts of a crime scene or of a case into a news story. But I was sort of bored. And <laughs> I would always try to find the humor in some of the most tragic stories. So it was she pulled me aside once and said, you're a really good writer and funny, but I don't think journalism <laughs> <Okay>. is <laughs> the way to go. <laughs> it's like, I think there was a I mean, the way the class worked is you had art, you had facts from real events that happened and you had to sort of reduce it to a, you know, a soundbite and a, you know, a, a story. And I look and I have to say, being a journalism major, I think, made me a better writer overall in my career, because that teaches you to get to the information and write concisely and know what the facts are and know what the story is and um, I didn't realize I didn't learn to appreciate that till much later. But yeah, it was it, I would she, it was always about the lead. And you're a journalist. You know what that means. It was always about the lead and the story. And I just thought I got to open this big. And so, most of mine were funny. I, I And it was inappropriate. <laughs> it was inappropriate. But she said, I, I, I'm sitting here laughing, but I shouldn't be. But um uh, thank you for, you know, introducing me to your comic world. But she really did say, you're a writer, but I don't think you're a, you, you, if you're going to write this way that you can do it in journalism. So that's the first introduction I got to what else is out there. Because I didn't have anyone in my family in the business. I didn't know anything about it. I was attending USC in journalism, political science. I remember getting exposed. There was like a you know, housing field trip to uh, filming of a comedy show. And I was blown away by the process. It was, I believe it was Cheers. I was like, this is how they do this? I was just clueless about it. But I started investigating all of that. And then I went to, uh, you know, uh, they were doing writing seminars. Um, and it was a woman who was the, and I, I've got to remember her name, but I, I, I can't recall right now. So I apologize to her, but she was an inspiration. I hope I could find her one day and tell her. Um, but that she was the first woman writer on the Bob Newhart show. And I was like, I want to do that. I remember her talking about it. She was the only woman who got that opportunity. And I thought, how do you do that? Again, I wasn't in this business. My family's from Texas. I was living in the state of Washington. I graduated from high school and Pullman, Washington, because my father was a professor there. And then I moved down to LA to 10 USC. So that was the education part. I was exposed to some great stuff in politics as well as in journalism. And now television. I'm going to presume with a professor for a father, education was a must. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody was graduating. I happened to be the only one in my family that didn't go on to get like a you know, graduate degree, you know. Um, well, I mean, you did, you did. My but... son. Right. I do, but not, right not in the traditional, in the traditional way. way. Yeah, I didn't go on and get a, a master's or a doctorate degree, but, you know, all everybody, my older sister did. Um, 
my younger sister didn't, she, I guess me, my younger sister and, and my youngest son, but my, even my oldest son is, you know, went to law, is, just finished law school. I mean, education was just part of it. It was, it was, I was told that was the path to getting the doors open, having the education, but you had to get scholarships to go to school. My family wasn't wealthy, even though my father was a professor and he did want me to go. He taught at Washington State University, he was a counselor and a professor and um, he's like, stay in Washington. I'm like, I have to go to California. <laughs> you know, I need to go down there. Now, granted, I didn't know I was pursuing television. I knew I was pursuing entertainment, writing, jerk, you know, political science. Um, and fortunately got um, partial scholarships to attend USC. And then the rest was in student loans and Cal grants. You know what all that's about. But I was going to make that work. I love, yeah, university. I, I actually teach in the cinema school as well at USC now. Just to go into that. I, so, I see that right here. Yeah, go back to my alma mater and and give back. I, I Although I was never in the cinema school. Um, they claim me as a graduate, but I when at the time that I was there, um, they only, they only um, had 25 students in the school, you know, and they were in little tiny bungalows on one side of campus. And it was such a, it was such a competitive, you know, admission process to get in. So I stuck with journalism and political science. Um, but then once I got in the industry, they invited me back to the 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 mm -hmm. momentous and oftentimes stressing beyond all belief first job after school. What was that? The first job upon graduation. Oh, I was kind of black. Again, remember I was a political science major? And I graduated in the year there was a, a presidential oh. campaign. So I worked in politics. So I was in, literally, I was in San Francisco working as an intern um, for the Democratic Convention for CBS um, via a friend who got me a great opportunity there, my friend Lynn, who was also from USC. And um, I was, I met Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and uh, oh, I don't even know. I, I could just go on with a list of the it people that inspired right me there. as a journalist. But I worked at the those, those are institutions. I know. Well, I, literally, Walter Cronkite. Am I blessed? Um, but yes, I I went right into politics. So I worked the convention, and then I got on the presidential campaign. So I worked in presidential campaigns in advance, and got exposed to traveling all over the United States, you know, as an advanced team member, which means you travel to a location, set up an event, the candidate comes there, does a speech and then moves on and you get sent to another city. And I thought, this is the greatest thing on earth. Like I got exposed to life all across the country. One minute you're in Houston, the next you're in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the next you're in some other place. And it was fantastic. Um, and I thought I was going to stay in politics, but I was also still in love with writing. So I would write and as I was traveling. And then ultimately I got, I came back. I have to say most of the candidates I worked for lost. So I think I'm the jinx. Oh, wow. okay. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I came back and I had to get, I got a job as an assistant on a show, a comedy. This is this is this is going to re really reveal our age because you just revealed that you're earlier how much younger you are than me. Um, but on, give me a break. How appropriate, right? And I was answering phones and you know stuffing envelopes and 
we had typewriters back then. Know about. Folks today don't know nothing about that. And um, changing, changing the ribbon, <laughs> changing the ribbon um, alone was a messy yeah, task. Yeah, we were thrilled when we got that little backspace button. Remember that the backspace button that corrected it. That was that was a major innovation. Um, <clears throat> but I sat at the front desk answering phones and ordering lunches and you know just doing what I needed to do. And this is about. This is a year and a half after I was out of college. But I also wrote a script. And as I when I finished it, I it was a half hour comedy. I'd watched a show on TV and I gave it to the producers and asked them to read it. And I believe that was on a Thursday. And on Monday of the next week, um, another producer I hadn't given it to came out of his office and said, I understand you you've written a script. I'd love to read it. It's like, I'm like now. And he's like, yeah, you got to. So I give him the script. <laughs> he walks out. He comes back into his office or he comes back later and tosses on the edge of my desk and moves into his office. And a couple hours later, I got called into the executive producer's office. I thought it was because his assistant was out for that day and they needed me to do some work. So I'm all ready to show I can be an executive producer's assistant. Cause I'm just at the time, what's right. called a receptionist answering phones, like what's today's PA, you know? And I go in and I've got my notebook and I'm like, what do you need me to do? And they say, we're going to have to let you go for firing. And I stood there for a minute, but they knew I would do this. And I said, that's fine. You can have your job, you know? And I was like, I got no warning. No one told me what, gave me an opportunity to prove myself. This is um, unprofessional. And I start, I, I mean, I was, I just was right. like, I'm going right. to tell so you. I'm fired. I ain't I'm losing like, nothing. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm like, I make coffee and I don't even drink it. That was my big point. <laughs> I have done everything and no one's given me any kind of warning, but that's okay. You can keep your job. You can get, and they, in the middle of it, they just start rolling and they're like, we read your script and we're going to make you a writer. So I went from answering phones to writing four solo and two co-writes um, of the show Give Me a Break in in my first career as a writer, in my first job. Would it writer. be fair to say that the working on, on the political journey, the the going to uh -huh. places before the candidate got there, the just looking at journalists or looking at news stories and finding a humor in it that is probably inappropriate right and i can say that because i spent years as a paramedic and would often chuckle at stuff that i'm like if anybody knew i was laughing at this right before before going to <laughs> hr became so modern day prevalent like yeah. This is yeah. if they yeah. knew what i was yeah. laughing at i would probably have to walk myself to hr before anyone told them anything. <laughs> so would it be fair exactly. to say that that journey helped prepare you for what the next phase was? Your ability to look at things from a whole perspective, but find just little pieces and places of stuff you see that others just are devoid of seeing. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, you so nail on the head, you know. Um, I 
got exposed to so many different people. Like I, I'm not going to get up and wake up one morning and send myself to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I'm not going to go to, you know, no. some small town in Arizona or New Mexico. I'm not, you know, and because of the exposure to the people and I work with union workers and I worked with community leaders and I worked with, you know, moms who had organizations together and you learn their personalities and you see what their lives are like different than yours. You know, um, I grew up, I'd say middle class. My father, I mean, we had a, uh, my family was together. We were fortunate. We moved a lot. We were often the only black family in a community. Um, but I saw so many economic ranges because I also worked with candidates who were running for office, local office, and people who were in the, you know, in the state offices and in the assembly. And it was such a great exposure to behavior and people and their lifestyles and, what they do that was so different than what how I grew up or so different than what I was seeing in one place to the other. So yeah, absolutely. I got exposed to some great people and personalities. I'm a character driven writer and I I reach out to, you know, learn what people do and what their lives are like and um what makes them laugh, what makes them sad, what's the struggles in their lives. Um and so when you meet these people, they're great ideas for comedy. You don't you don't you don't steal who they are exactly, but it helps influence how you create something you don't know because you've met them, because you've been out in the United States and across the country meeting people. It was great. Really, really great devoted people who work in, in you know, the grassroots and local parts of government and, and campaigns and things like that. Much different then than it is, I have to say, today. My due diligence revealed that in 1990, she became a writer on the sketch comedy series In Living Color, later became head writer, remaining with the series until mm -hmm. it ended in 1994. What was it like going yeah. to In Living Color in its absolute beginning? Well, I came in 13 episodes in. Um, if everybody recalls, it was a mid-season show. They were it, it aired later in a season, was introduced with a right. short run and became a huge hit. And then I interviewed and I actually got an interview because of someone I knew in politics, which was great. I had finished political campaigns and um, someone said, I'm working at this agency and they're looking for writers and write three scripts and I'll get it to them, you know? And I got on the show and it was scary and competitive and funny and challenging and um, really exciting. Once we were, you know, once you were there, because you'd go to restaurants and people would be doing characters, you know, in the booth next to you because they were talking about the show. It was a really exciting, exciting time um, in my career. Um, I had a great time, but it was also really challenging um, and competitive because you had to be really funny. Um, and you spent a lot of your time hoping someone with a high profile would do something goofy. So you'd have something to pitch <laughs> for a sketch in the next week. You're like, please let Lo Ro Roseanne Barr sing the national anthem. Please, <laughs> you know, those are the kind of things for, you know, what can happen with Al Sharpton? What can happen with, you know, what sketch can I do for, you know, uh, Homie the Clown or for the, you know, the BS brothers, you're, you know, you're always looking for what's happening in the world so I can, have an idea, but you were constantly pitching ideas to Keenan Ivory Wayans, um, who had a great sense of what was funny and 
um, what the, you know, he had a great handle on his show on what, what kind of show are we going to be? Um, and he and Damon and uh, Sean and Marlon and Kim, I mean, the whole family plus Jim Carrey, um, the Fly Girls, which of course included Jennifer Lopez, uh, Rosie Perez was the choreographer. Rosie was a delight to work with. Um, everybody was. It was it was an exciting, exciting time. So to go from I'm kind of, you know, I was in politics. I did a half hour show and then I'm looking for a job. Um, got on that show. I was thrilled it, it, when it started. It was it was ex it was exciting from the first day I was there till the bitter end. Shows. You joined the show in 1990. Show ends in 1994, for which is the tenure of which mm -hmm. you stayed. I will come back to that because that time period has great relevance in this particular episode of The Sidebar. But I would be remiss if I did not go a little further into your career as this is a Black History Month episode. The first one to start Black History for The Sidebar, the podcast by the New York Association of Black Journalists. And there's no better person for me to start this with. Let's move to 1997. It says, my notes say in 1997, Vise decided to transition to dramatic television, writing an episode of Nash Bridges. During the same year, she served as an executive producer and consulting producer on the sitcom Between Brothers and the Gregory Hines show, respectively. Now, let's unbox that. Because that's a lot. <laughs> so you figure... That, that's well, a lot. Yeah, it is, except the business is so unpredictable. First of all, I had an absolute passion not to be defined solely as a comedy writer. So um, I was I was ready to transition into drama because that's what I enjoyed watching. I loved writing, watching dramas. I liked comedies, but I, I just wanted my chance to write a drama so I wrote some spec scripts and my agents kept saying you just left in living color why why aren't you going into com I mean we can get you any comedy job you want well almost any comedy job you want it was pretty limiting I have to be honest um but uh but they had plans you know and I said I just think I'm more than comedy I like dramas I want to see if I can be a drama writer and they thought I was crazy but I was one of the first to cross over from comedy to drama and I wrote a spec script and the guys at Nash Bridges again drama was populated with men gave me an opportunity to write on that show but I had a limited um a limited run on that show because I had an overall deal god bless not good with 20th television who also produced in living color so they had plans for me to do other things so I got an opportunity to work on um, Nash Bridges, which was great fun. And I, you know, it was with Carlton Cuse and John Worth and Damon Lindelof. And I mean, there was just such great guys there, um, you know, and, and on the living color, there weren't, we weren't, there was a lot of women, but there were other women on that show, you know, including yeah. the cast that wrote sketches. So uh, to be the woman in the room and be in drama suddenly was really, um, quite an experience, but yes, I wrote Nash and then I, Went back and did more comedy because I had an uh, overall deal with TriStar after 20th. And they gave you opportunities to work on different shows. So 
uh, Gregory Hines had a comedy and I was consulting on that. And I think, well, I forgot what else you mentioned. Between <laughs> Brothers. Like there's, yeah, Between Brothers, um, ran that for a little while, went on to the next thing. But I was quite interested in being more than just a comedy writer or, you know, being labeled one type of writer. You know, it was really important for me to spread my wings and try to write drama, comedy, sketch comedy, just because I thought, I'm a writer first. I'm just a writer. I, I think I can do both. I was blessed to start in comedy, but I really love dramas and I want to, you know, explore that world. Plus, the drama world has a way better schedule for writers <laughs> than, than comedy. Um, I was pregnant when I was on the Gregory Hyde show and they literally, I didn't have a desk. I had a couch and a fan. Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. Because I was pregnant i'd sit on the couch and they'd point the fan because i was always complaining i'm so hot they'd point the fan at me in the wow. writer's room and uh i pitch out ideas but i i didn't come that off i was a consultant on that show you know i'd come on a couple of maybe three days a week um and it was great the staff was terrific and you know pitching jokes was awesome but i really wanted to write continue writing drama um again comedy in a week you start on monday reading a script you're shooting a show on Friday. Um, the actors rehearse. You see a rehearsal on Tuesday. When you see that rehearsal, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. You still have to rewrite the script, you know. So your days are very long. Um, you're having you're having lunch at seven p.m. You know, <laughs> and then you're going you're going home late. And the same with In Living Color. The the hours are extensive. But in drama, um, you sit down, you write a script, you hand them the pages, you get notes. And they shoot, they, you know, they aim for shooting from, you know, seven to seven. And then you go home, you know, so the lifestyle was much different. How important. Much different. And I didn't choose drama to get for the lifestyle, but lifestyle, I appreciated right? that it. Was an, once that I was got an accoutrement there, you know? that came along with it. Yeah. How important is it? Yeah, it was like, in your oh, opinion, wow. For my, for my listeners who are at the beginning of their journey, whatever their journey may be, how important do you feel it is, as you mentioned, um, to diversify that work portfolio, because you you have comedy, you have drama, you have a, a, a politics. Like you you have a diversified portfolio. Where God rest her soul, if my grandmother was still alive, she'd say something like, "You'd never be without a job." So, how important is diversification in the portfolio to you? It's really important when you get into the business. And this isn't a knock on agents. They, if you have an agent, they tend to have a plan for you, because they 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 discover what you've been successful at. So let's say you start your career in comedy and you did well. Well, they have a comedy path for you, you know. But if you can say, I don't want to follow your path. I want to work, and I will work when to to advance myself. The more you can take risks, particularly when you were young, I took far more risks before I was married and had kids. But to just try things out, to see um, if the things I wanted to do, I was able to do. So, um, but I was so blessed to, I mean, we moved around a lot when I was young. I was born in Texas. We lived in Utah. We lived, my parents lived in Wyoming. I went to school in the state of Washington. I came to California. Um, you can draw from all the experiences that you have, you know. Um, those are all very different places very, to live very. and spend time in school and learn people. And then when I got, you know, in 
college, I, you know, I, I studied journalism. I went to Washington, D.C. for a semester. I really thought I was going to be working in politics. But again, exposure to government and politics and, and how, how our world works politically and then being able to have that knowledge and bring it back. So exposure to almost everything and anything you can, you can um, experience is fantastic. Uh, it makes you a better writer. Um, so, yeah, being in politics, moving a lot, um, starting in comedy, then going to drama, doing sketch comedy, um, all of that served to make me a better producer, writer in every job that followed. In 2004, you became the showrunner of the CSI crime scene investigation spinoff, CSI New York a position you would remain in until the show was canceled in 2013. Two questions. Number one, obviously number one mm -hmm. is what was that like? But more important to be part of that <laughs> franchise, right? But before we get to that, for those who are wondering, may have heard the term, could you explain showrunner first? Sure. I always explain showrunner as the person who gets to say yes. <laughs> you know, in this business, people are in it, you hear no often. So it's the person who has to be brave enough to say yes. So you're in charge of mostly everything that happens with the show. So decisions that have to do with production design, casting, writing, um, hiring, firing, uh, scheduling directors, uh, deciding what the season's about. So it goes beyond writing. It's really about management and making sure a show um, meets the schedules, comes in budget, um, you know, looks visually appropriate on TV. I mean, you deal with everything. And all of these things are set up with by, by other people. It, it, you know, your network says this is what we want from the show. So it's your job to make sure it's executed. You know, I worked with the Bruckheimer company, which I absolutely loved. It was great being with them. Jerry Bruckheimer has a high standard of what his television shows look like. So you were making many movies each week. Um, but to, to, to always meet his standard, that's my job to make sure we meet that standard. When you have writers, you're telling them the direction of the season. You're telling them the direction of an episode. When you're dealing with directors, you're telling them what the style of the um, show was like, you know, how we shoot a show, what the hours we're going to spend doing it. I had, I worked with fantastic producers. Um, one in particular, Vicki Williams, who was my, you know, partner through this, through most of those years, um, who taught me a lot about budgets and money and how, you know, those kinds of things. Cause as a writer, you don't always learn those things. Um, but yeah, it's it's you're in charge. When when there's a decision to be made, they come to you and it better be right. Otherwise, you're getting a phone call from somebody above you. Um, but you are essentially the chief of the, the show. show. You did that from 2004 to the eventually the end of the show, which was 2013. By my rudimentary math, that's nine years, which well, the most part is a very long time in this medium. Oh, um, yeah. What yeah, is it yeah. like as a woman of color to look around at all the other shows that started same time you did, ended or was significantly modified 
but you're still here. When you're in it, you're not taking, you're not thinking about that. You know, it's such a, such a intense and busy as well as joyful process. So you're, you're thrilled to achieve and to keep, get, keep getting the word that you're coming back for the next season, you know, cause this industry is so fleeting. You can, I've been on shows where it was four episodes and it was, thank you very much. We've had fun. Um, so while you're in it, you're not thinking about it in retrospect, I think, wow. Yeah. Um, that was quite an accomplishment. I do want to clear up. I was not the showrunner in okay. its first season. You know, I, I joined the show in its first season, but I was not the showrunner. I had been a showrunner on a show called the district and moved over and was sort of adding my experience to it, but ultimately got that job. Um, but yeah, while you're in it, you're not thinking about that because it's so intense. You want to just complete the job. Again, in retrospect, I look back and I think, one, I hope I was an example for people. Um, I hope I um, sort of dismissed some of the barriers and the preconceived ideas about women or people of color who can be showrunners, um, which I think I did. I, I'm, I feel proud about that. And um, that I that yeah i was doing it and other i hope other women other people of color got the opportunity because that was such a male predominantly male job showrunner in comedy or um drama so it was nice and i got that opportunity from two other women as long as as well as anthony zyker from Anne donahue and carol mendelson who were running the other franchise that franchise had a lot of women showrunners and it was, it was, we were blessed because, you know, CBS ex uh, appreciated us as well as the Brockheimer Company. Of which company. the Brockheimer Company basically did what? You have the original, which is in Vegas. You have my, you had Miami, you had CSI New York. I know eventually for a brief moment, there was a CSI Cyber, right? Cyber, right? Yeah, so that, that's four well, yeah. from, from a name that is just synonymous. Like there are very few names that sit on that level with, Bruckheimer, like the Bruckheimer name, like yeah. first name not required. Just when you hear Bruckauer, right? right there's certain <laughs> names. TV. You hear yeah. Bruckheimer, you hear Wolf, right? They're just certain names that when you hear them, it's like, hmm, yes. oh, 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 I got to watch this just because of the name that's attached to it. So based off of yeah. that, when you look back at that time, right, because that that is very much, uh, at least as I went through, unless I missed something, and please please correct me if I do, but that was very much a very pivotal, significant moment, not just in media. Here we have a, a very popular crime serial that has a black woman as a showrunner mm -hmm. in the 90s, which we, we still, some social issues that we've still not yet addressed or seen or come to the mm -hmm. forefront. Um, so it's very significant. And within those nine years, is there one moment where you went home, sat on the couch, and was like, I did that. <laughs> that's me. Oh, that's fun. Yes, absolutely. I would do it at the, again, when I mentioned that it's important to get picked up you know, year after year, that's when I did it. You know, that's when I said, okay, we got another year. Or when I, I was really competitive. I, I, I'm i just a competitive human being. So when it, when there were ratings, when we finally beat 
law and order, you know, in the ratings, I was like, yes, it was in an, it was a very competitive, you know, time. Uh, you know, you were always looking at the demographic, you know, lost got the demographic, but we got the largest audience. Those are the moments where I went, yes. You know, when you, when you were the top of the night, um, but also when you get to work with Gary Sneeze or Melina Kanakaridis, um, when you're in the presence of, um, you know, people that you've watched in film and television to come and join your TV show, you know, you go, yeah, you know, I mean, I remember uh, working with Gary Sneese and we invited uh, Michael T. Williamson to the show and he, Michael played Bubba in right. Forrest Gump, well, which, you know, which Gary was and what, Gary, Lieutenant Dan, right? Lieutenant yeah, Dan Lieutenant and Bubba. Dan. And they were both on the set. It gives me chills today. And it was like, that's them. That's the, those guys were there, you know, and uh, it was really great. Really great because those, I, those are the moments whenever I felt like I didn't get excited about stuff like that, I would question whether I'm still should be in the business. But, you know, you're you get to work with those people and, and see their talent and their commitment to their craft. And as writers, we go through a journey, but as actors, they go through a journey. So that was really, really cool. You know, um, I remember uh, my kids were really young and I they were watching the movie, The Miracle, you know, the the hockey story. And Eddie Cahill, who was a, played an officer on our show, you know, had been in that movie as the goalie, you know, and it was like, that was, oh, that wow. Was the you know, they were like, that's him. Character from, yeah. <laughs> that was the, what, the Lake Placid Olympics where, the, where we won the gold. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. And he played that role and then he was on our show and they, you know, that's how my kids identified. They're like, because I made him watch that movie. I'm like, you got to watch this great movie. We were major sports movie bands but you know it's sort of uh it was great it was great to be in the company of those people it was great to work with those actors so those were other moments where I went this is cool I'm doing this I I, I had a goal I wanted to be in television I wanted to write drama it's happening and um I'm blessed I would like to share with you what really made me proud sure 1991 <laughs> nominee, Primetime Emmy, Outstanding Writing in a Variety or Music Program in Living Color. 1992 nominee, Primetime Emmy, Outstanding Individual Achievement in Writing in a Variety or Music Program in Living Color. 2012 nominee, Image Award, Outstanding Writing in a Dramatic Series, Ringer. For episode, oh God, there's two of them. What are those emotions like? when you're nominated all the other programs in a category that did not get any nominee and here you are a nominee in prestigious categories as such what is that like it's great <laughs> it's great it's, there's no other word for it um it's it's a sign that you did it right um uh you enjoy it as a group of writers, particularly on In Living Color, because it was, you know, we were all, all writers writing sketches. It wasn't for a particular sketch, it was for the show. And you're proud of the work that you've done. I would love to win. Maybe that's why I'm still doing this. I want to get that. I can die without it because I'm really happy right. that I got to do this. But um, I still covet, you know, the idea of, Winning would that would that be your but, your your drop the microphone 
Thank you for coming out. God bless. Good night moment. Oh, yeah. I would go, I'm done. Don't call me. I'm finished. <laughs> I have a script due tomorrow. Yeah, might get it. No. <laughs> I'd like to read something. I'm going back in time. Super Bowl 26, <laughs> January 26, 1992. This excerpt, well, this comment that I'm reading comes from the NFL.com. It says in 1992, Fox decided to air a live episode of In Living Color, its hit comedy sketch show starring Jim Carrey and the Williams Brothers, among others, to compete with halftime programming on CBS, which was airing in the game. The In Living Color episode drew over 20 million viewers and sparked changes to the Super Bowl halftime show moving forward. The following year for Super Bowl 27, Michael Jackson gave an epic concert performance and the halftime show has been a cultural phenomenon and mass media extravaganza ever since. Courtesy of NFL.com. My calendar says that in that time period, you were there at a living color. Can you tell us, you know, for the, for the best of your recollection, what that moment was like, because to be fair, the economics that surround the NFL, the institution that has become known as the NFL, the quote-unquote stealer of Sundays from the church NFL, <laughs> you know, the first place where there was a million-dollar commercial break. Mm. What is that like to know that a program who has a an African-American female writer among others. So I'm not discounting anyone else, but here is a program yeah. that you're a part of that has basically stuck a flag in the soil of American economics and changed its diaspora. What is that like when you look back at that moment? Well, when we were in it, it was just a great idea. You know, we didn't know we were going to change sort of the template of how, you know, the Super Bowl halftime went from up with people to Michael Jackson, you know, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, it was always some cool kind of floats and thing, you know, the halftime was what most halftimes are. But we knew what was exciting for us is it was live, you know, um, Saturday Night Live was live, but In Living Color was not. And so it was a live show, which we also had a black female director. I want to say that. Feel free um, to say it one more time for the proverbial people in the back. Yeah, we had a black female director of that live show. And then we also knew we just, we wanted to make a splash, you know? So we went to the whale, well, W-E-L-L. Um, that's my Seattle accent, I guess. Um, <laughs> to the well of our reliable characters. So it was uh, Homeboy Shopping Network with Damon and Keenan and um, men on film and um, Jim Carrey's Fire Marshal Bill and and you know you wanted to fill up this hour but again it was live for us so I remember being there on that Sunday I remember the sketches had been rehearsed and um, it was just like ready set go there were other sketches that were written with wardrobes ready with things happening um, that if you know, because you didn't know the timing, you just had to just keep going. And 
where the commercial breaks were going to be. And it was really exciting at the, at the live um, filming. Um, it was exciting to talk about it, but we didn't know the impact while we were doing it. We just thought, yeah, let's break convention and give them something to turn they to, turn. you know, let's be funny. Oh yeah. But it was, you know, we had, you know, subjects on football and we, you know, pulled out all the the characters everybody loved to watch and it was just plain exciting um and it, it was it was fun to be there and see it happening because this, the way in living color worked is we would film a live a, a live audience show meaning not not live show but a show with an audience on Wednesdays then we would do block and tape it, that's what it was called in the old days those were the special effects things, mostly fire marshal right. bill sketches, things that went outside the studio, didn't need an audience. And then we would do another show in front of a studio audience on Friday nights. And that's when we did the opening and closing the show and always had the fantastic, you know, musical artists that joined us. So that was our way of doing things. Well, this was, guess what? We continued past Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday, which was the game, I believe, you are doing a, a show lot, and all of this has to move and shake and there's no redo and there's no pause and just go. So the live aspect for us was what was really exciting. Other than the fact that we were disruptive, we were trying to disrupt what, you know, the way you do things. Why can't people change from halftime to go to Fox, watch a, 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 you know, a, a halftime show and go back. And we encouraged them to go back to the game. But it was a huge hit. And yes, indeed, after the fact, we realized we changed the way the NFL was going to present their halftime show because that was not going to happen again. And there has not been another halftime show. To be fair, you didn't just change the way the NFL does the halftime show. Super Bowl 31, January 26, 1997. Five years later, Fox broadcast its first Super Bowl and joined the Super Bowl tree, which is Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC, whichever one is signed on this year. And they rotate yeah, every three yeah. years. One of those channels has the Super Bowl. And as, as stated, since that time, Fox has broadcast 10 Super Bowls over the last 27 years, with the next being Super Bowl 59, February 9th, 2025. You did not just change the way people view the halftime show. You changed Fox Sports economic status. And I think that more so than what you've done to the Super Bowl show, which is profoundly otherworldly, to completely shift the broadcasting paradigm, period, is an accomplishment that I feel is not granted to all parties involved with that program at all. Not enough at all. So looking at that, yeah. your, thoughts, your <laughs> thoughts on, yeah. I mean, it's one thing for the Super Bowl halftime show to be mentioned in Variety, to be on, uh, uh, I mean, if you're talking the 90s, you're talking entertainment tonight. But it's another thing when, when yeah, Crane's yeah. Business, Forbes, U.S. News World Report, the economic magazines are saying, hold on, we have seismic needle movement in an earthquake in this here broadcasting uh, entity. 
how 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 is that as you look at that now I, you said back then y'all didn't see it that way and rightly so you're moving you're shaking you got a program to do you got wednesday live audience you got friday live audience now we're doing this whole thing live there's no live audience and then tape and then live and then juxtapose the two intro outro do your bumpers uh whoever does editing stick the national commercials yeah. on it and send it off to everybody that gets right, it right. this thing is the late gil scott heron said uh this here revolution will be live. So what is that like? <laughs> yeah. Looking at it now. It's exciting. It's it's, it's so exciting to be a, a, have been a part of that. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, with Keenan and Damon and, and 20th Television and Fox, they realized they had an opportunity and they took a hold of it and, and ran with it, you know? Um, and we, the writers and actors and fly girls and makeup, hair, wardrobe, all of us were on the ride for it. As far as it, you know, changing the dynamics in the finance world and the sports world, that's really exciting. I'm a huge sports fan. I actually have a son who plays. I was the about Falcons. to go there. I was about to go. And, your younger son, um, correct? Yeah. And, and have always been a sports fan and love football. I, I watch it more than my kids do. Um, but it's, 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 it's great to disrupt in a positive way. You know, it's great to change the perspective. Um, you, I mean, you've noticed they have, no one's done it again. It's isolated. It's a one-time ever event because everyone took notice and said, sports are valuable, but also we got to own it. The NFL said, we got to own our halftime show. You know, we can't have people leaving because they may not watch the rest of the game, you know? Um, and we, that was the time, can you imagine? That was the time there was no Twitter, social media. I mean, just imagine had that been um, going on at the time and how it would have exploded in this social media world. That 20 million. That twenty million oh, in yeah. today's in today's time would have been a hundred. I mean, that's those are big perform. Those are concerts of the halftime so of a Super Bowl. You know, I was in the. You know, my kids got to see Prince. You know, um, in Miami with it raining, with him singing "Purple Rain." It's a highlight <laughs> of 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 my life for me. Um, but yeah, it was great to be on a show and do something. And again, when you're in it, you don't know the outcome. You don't you don't know that people are going to change and watch the show. You're hoping for it. So what you plan for and what Keenan and Damon and all our producers and the network studio planned for was do the best, funniest, you know, most, you know, in living color, in living color you can do in that time period in that amount of time so when they say it's halftime boom people you have promoted it people turn to the channel they watch you give them laugh after laugh after laugh non-stop when it's time to go back you pay you know you you're courteous and respectful of the fact you're doing a football halftime show and they go back to the game and i uh, the one thing i always think about is there was no social media then and it would have just blown up you know but it was fun and it was great and it was great to have an influence in sports. And it's great that Fox found value in, 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 you know, joining the, the football 
broadcasting, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to The Sidebar, the podcast brought to you by the New York Association of Black Journalists. My guest today has been the all-everything producer, writer, probably the greatest job she could possibly have, his mom. I know I'm speaking for you, but somehow... I think you, you'll you'll agree with oh, that. Yeah. Um, she's been with us today. Talk about yeah. her her career, her life, and of course the contribution to the economic sports dynamic, which was the In Living Color halftime show in between the 1992 NFL Super Bowl 26. I want to say thank you immensely for your time. My question to you mm -hmm. would be, and I'm gonna pronounce it right, Miss Pam Vise was to pick up the telephone. <laughs> and place a call to a young Pam, I'm going to say 35 years ago, what would you say to her? Take more risk. Yeah. Be brave and take more risks um, in the business. Uh, I didn't learn to do that till sort of one third of the way in the business, but be strong about your writing, continue to be passionate and take more risk. Um, while you can, because it's a tough journey. So if you believe in yourself, you were right to, and uh, enjoy it. That's it. Ms. Vise, thank you for taking the time with us today. Your time has greatly been appreciated. We wish to express our most sincerest thanks to our distinguished guests. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and give The Sidebar a great review. As a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in every episode of The Sidebar belong to the individuals who made them and not to the NYABJ. For more information on the NYABJ, please visit www.nyabj.org. Music by Halizna Raps.